0: get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way
1: Welcome to out of the comfort zone I'm Wanda Wallace and today we're going to talk about culture Now we all know that you have an intuitive instinctive feel about a culture and when you join a company you can say this is kind of a good fit it's a good place But it's very difficult to identify exactly what that means. You can't quite put your finger on it. It's certainly difficult to know how to go about measuring it. And worse yet, how do you go about changing it? Well, today, we're going to talk with a specialist in changing culture. So my guest today is Howard Ting. Howard is co-founder and managing partner of Considia Consulting, where his job is helping CEO clients and their teams thrive. So creating high-performance teams, coaching where that's needed, aligning behind vision and strategy, and in effect, driving efforts forward. Howard's worked with some pretty impressive clients, Airbnb, Cisco, eBay, Facebook, Gap, Genentech, Sephora, World Bank, and so forth. And he's done this work globally across the um, all different continents. Prior to joining Considia, Howard was a senior manager, engagement manager at. TRIUM Group, which is a boutique consultancy focused on the intersection of strategy, leadership, and culture. Before that, he was at Fireman's Fund Insurance, and before that, he was at Accenture's strategy practice. And I must add, Howard is fluent both in English and Mandarin. So, Howard, welcome to
2: the show. Thank you, Wanda. I'm excited to be here. It's one of my I'm favorite excited topics about, Talk it. about culture. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's fabulous, and you've certainly had some interesting experiences between Accenture and Fireman's Fund and then a boutique consultancy, and now in Considia. So I'm imagining all of those add to what you contribute. So let's start at the hardest question for everybody. What is it that really defines the culture of a group or an organization?
2: Mm-hmm. Here's, here's how I think about it. I think of culture as values. So what's important to us as an organization? What do we stand for? Okay. Um, I think of beliefs. What do we believe about ourselves or our customers or our clients or about the, the broader environment? And then what are our behaviors? How do we want to behave with, either with each other or with our customers or our clients? And it's, I mean, it's, it's actually quite simple. Um, again, values, beliefs, and behaviors. And from there, you can start to, as you, as you put it, start to put your finger on what a culture is and what you want it to be a bit more.
1: So can you measure this? I mean, this is, is this a quantifiable thing?
2: I think, I think you said it well in your introduction. I think that uh, quantifiable, kind of, meaning that I think I've had clients measure to what extent we're living some of our values. So I had mm-hmm. one client, one of their values they came up with was speak the truth, which was really around having the most junior person in the room feel free to be able to give either tough feedback to the CEO or, or offer a contrasting viewpoint, and you can either, you know, just a simple survey, you can survey to what extent do we believe are we living that value? To what extent are our senior leaders role modeling that value? So I think in that sense, presuming you actually have a defined culture in terms of values and certain behaviors that we want to demonstrate, I think you actually can measure it.
1: So if I know what I want it to be, I can assess whether we're doing it or not. Okay, that makes That's sense right. to me. That's right. How do I figure out what it is we have? So you say it's the values, sort of what do we stand for, the beliefs about ourselves, about our clients, about our marketplace, about our customers, and yep. the behaviors with each other, yep. with our customers as well.
2: Yeah.
1: How do I get a sense of what it really is?
2: I think there are a couple ways you can go about that, right? I think of it in two ways. One is. I think, you know, talk to your staff. I mean, talk with the leadership team and sort of reflect on, you know, what do we think our culture is? If we, if we use the simple framework of values and beliefs and behaviors, what would what, what we say? What would our clients say about us? So I think there's this, this concept of a discovery process that you could use. Um, but I often encourage my clients to think about what do we want? Uh-huh. What's, what's our aspiration for our culture? And most importantly, what's the culture that's actually going to enable us to execute our strategy, right? Because I think we can't think and talk about culture in isolation. It has to be tied and linked to our strategy and what we're trying to accomplish.
1: Okay. I like this notion that um, there's the aspiration of what do we wish it to be, which is often mm-hmm. sometimes hard to identify. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, getting a group together, let alone a 5,000-person organization together sure. to say what do we want to be, Sure. But this idea that the culture is enabling us to achieve a strategy. So, can you give me an example of how a company thinks about that um, culture and the strategy?
2: Sure. So, a few years back, I was working with a financial services organization, and they—they they really, you know, their their mission, interestingly enough, was um, changing the financial services industry and creating a lot more transparency. Because I'm not—I'm sure you probably have worked with financial services clients, but just a bit. Yeah. There's <laughs> there's a lot of like hidden fees. Um, there's a lot of like who's getting paid by whom. So there's a lot of that going on. And as, as individual consumers, we don't always have transparency into that. And when they when they started their organization, they said, you know what, we want to change things. We want to be really focused on the consumer, right? So that was sort of what their their focus was in the marketplace. Now mm-hmm. internally they talked a lot about creating an organization where we'd want our kids to work. And, and, and that was the whole concept of, and not everyone had kids, so it wasn't really about literally their kids, but it was literally around creating an organization that was lasting and durable, where we would want people that we care about to work in, that it felt that good and positive. So I think if you think about those two things, right, I think they're connected because you're talking about an organization that Within financial services, it wasn't about making a ton of money, although they did. <laughs> but it was really around changing the, changing the industry and, okay. internally, changing what it feels like to work at a place. Okay.
1: All right. So, c- can you continue this example and tell us how they went about then creating the culture that allowed them mm. to achieve that kind of transparency?
2: Sure, sure. <clears throat> so... One of the things I often say and tell my clients is that culture led from the top, and I still believe that. so the CEO really had this vision that culture could be a competitive advantage for their organization, which was pretty pretty foreign at the time. Um, you know people think about product, people think about competition, think about pricing, what have you right but he was like thinking you know we could we could actually make culture. A linchpin for this organization, and he went about. They, um, you know, in the early days of the organization, they 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 went outside and, and defined their values, um, mm-hmm. and that was the starting point. And the key isn't just to define values. I mean, you probably know this, but Enron. One of Enron's values was integrity, and mm-hmm. we all know how that worked out, right? So it's not mm-hmm. just about okay. defining the values. <laughs> That's the starting point, but. If you're going to go through the trouble of defining values then as the CEO and and as the CEO's leaders or the direct reports to the CEO, you've got to make sure that you're role modeling it. I'm living okay. this and people can hold me accountable. And then going back to your question, how did they start to really embed that in the organization? It just became part of the fabric. So there was just a lot of investment in terms of bringing the values to life. So... You know, having all team, you know, the entire team sometimes globally get together and, and talk about, like, you know, how are we living these values, um, and also just starting to embed some of these values into processes like hiring, like promotion, onboarding, um, because ultimately, what I what I see is culture lives and dies in day to day decisions. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't live on a poster you know, by, by the copy room, right. it lives in the tough decisions. So for example, if we're talking about one of our values, if one of the values, one of their values actually also happened to be team before self. Mm-hmm. So when we make promotions, do we promote the person who is a superstar and brings in a ton of revenue? who <laughs> really puts himself before others and doesn't play well in the sandbox with others. That's when the value actually means something or when it actually is just wallpaper. Okay.
1: Yeah, you certainly see that every day in every organization where they don't go back to the core values to make exactly, Mm -hmm. as you say, the tough decisions, and sometimes the day-to-day decisions. And I don't think it's intentionally, let's not live up to our values. Of course not. It's just not a conscious top of mind action. Okay, I want to come back on something. I want to be a little bit cynical here. Okay. Go so for it. I walk into lots of companies, and most yeah. companies have some value statement somewhere plastered on the entry hallway, <laughs> something. Sure. Um, and there's a lovely book I call I like called the mission book, where you could read a hundred different companies' mission, vision, and value statements, and you'd be hard pressed to say which one was which page. Right. So, if we look at values in most company, we have something around integrity of trust. We have something around yeah. team or collaboration. Sure. We have something around customer and client right. centricity. Blah, blah, blah. We have something around excellence. <laughs> and then yeah. you can pick one from a list of five. Yeah. I don't find them very inspiring because there's nothing unique about them. It feels like that's the minimum you better be doing if you're going to be in business. So right. how do you help a company understand what the values really, truly are about, especially if that's part of what defines culture?
2: Yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a great question. I mean, I think ultimately, so here's what I believe. I don't believe what matters actually what the actual values are as much because as you put it, it can, be, it can come across as so genera- generic. What I care more about and what I try to help my clients see, is what matters more is what do they mean internally and externally to our, to our customers and to our staff, and are we living them? I think that's the most important part, actually.
1: Okay. I don't all know right. if that
2: so, your question or not.
1: Yeah, that does. That does. Because I would agree with you. I mean, I, I hope every company has integrity in some form or another as sure. part of their values. But they, but don't. they ask.
2: We, we all know that they don't, right? <laughs>
1: They don't always live it, that's for sure, or at least not in every day and every decision. So how do you help companies understand how well they're living this value? Like collaboration, for example, an easy one to pick on.
2: Right. I think it's, I don't think it's that hard. <laughs> Meaning that, uh, you know, if collaboration is one of their like you just ask them sometimes, like, so how are we collaborating? What's the quality of it? Is it? Is it actually producing the results that we want? So I think it's it's just really asking them. So I think some, you know, just tactically, it's a combination of just interviews with people and or survey instruments to okay. help them understand, you know, how are we doing on this? Where do we need work?
1: Okay. Well, and you, I'm sure you encounter a lot of engagement surveys, employee engagement, sure. where we have some version of some of these values usually embedded in the engagement survey. Mm -hmm. And you'll come back with this interesting conundrum in that they'll say, I like my immediate manager, and he or she does a good job on living the values and, you know, being transparent to me or having integrity or whatever. But the senior leadership, I don't trust. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's this disconnect often between the people I work with day to day and those people right. somewhere, somewhere else that I don't see. What's your yeah. advice in those cases?
2: I think it's complicated. <laughs> um, I think I see that all the time, too. And I think the, the reality is sometimes that can, it can kind of be a wild goose chase, to be honest, right, because you're trying to understand as a senior leader, like, so what does this mean? Why do they not trust me? So, but I, you know, but I rather than just obviously throwing your hands up, I think that what I would suggest is first see if you can try to understand that a bit more. So, for your listeners out there who are senior leaders, you know, that's first. Like, why is this? What's underneath this? You know, um, is it around integrity? Is it around valuing staff? Is it around just pure transparency and lack of communication? So, I think you know, trying to understand what what is at the heart of that is going to actually give you a chance at actually fixing that or remedying it. Right.
1: One of my colleagues has the belief that this lack of trust for senior management is because they don't actually know senior managers. They don't have any day-to-day interaction with them there, and so there's no personal connection, if you will, and therefore mm-hmm. it's hard to get trust. <clears throat> it could also be transparency and communication and a whole host sure. of other things as well.
2: Sure. All right. Actually, since we're on the topic, if you don't mind, um, I find trust to be such an important and volatile and also, like culture, kind of misunderstood topic. So I'm just going to offer a simple framework because I know that there's so many floating around for trust. But the the framework that I've used that I found to be most simple and easy is I think about trust as three things. Competency. So do you have the skills or abilities to do your job effectively? Reliability. So if I say I'm going to deliver that result or if I'm going to deliver that document by a certain date and time, do I follow through? Can, can, you know, am I a person of my word? Okay. And last is motive. Do I feel like you're acting in the best interest of the organization or the team or do I feel like you're just looking out for yourself? Okay. So I think, I guess that's the other thing I would go back to also is if, if a senior leadership team is, is seeing that on their report card, so to speak, they're not trusted, I think I'd, I'd ask them to re- also reflect which aspect is it. Do people okay. think they're incompetent? Do the people feel like they're not delivering on what they say they are? Or do people feel like they're only really interested in enriching themselves or at the, at the, at the, on the backs of the staff? But I'd ask them to reflect on that a bit more, too. Right.
1: I'm going to add one to your list here. It's a very yeah, good list. Um, Charles Green, who's been on this show, Trusted Advisor, says that yeah. trust or yeah. trustworthiness is competency, same as yeah. you, reliability, yeah. same as you. And he adds intimacy, how connected, how close we are, how much vulnerability we show. And then he says divided by self orientation, which is your motive thing. Yeah. higher the yeah. higher the, so the same all right so I don't want to talk about trust today although that's a great topic I want to get back <laughs> to talking about culture though I think in some ways they're actually related because if there is isn't trust then you don't believe you know we're standing for the values and you don't believe that what we say about what we want to be we're doing and you don't believe the behaviors are standing it up or holding it up <clears throat> mm-hmm. but let's go back to the role of the leader you said mm-hmm. that the culture has to be led from the top mm-hmm. Um any other particular advice that you see for what leaders need to be doing other than living the values in order to create the culture they're looking for?
2: Yes, I think that that's the first piece, which is to make sure that you're role modeling the values as a leader. But I'd say the, the biggest piece is uh, I, what I found and believe is culture can either happen or you can, as a leader, you can actually intentionally manage it. And of course, I, I believe in the latter, that as leaders, you should be intentionally managing the culture. So I think that's the other piece, right, is right. what am I, you know, what am I doing in terms of actively managing, tracking, and building and nurturing the culture within my organization or within my team?
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: I think that's the other place to look and think about.
1: Okay. Um, so give me an example of what you mean by actively manage. What would somebody be doing to actively manage?
2: So if, let's say for the sake of argument, um, collaboration, you've mentioned collaboration, is one of our values. Mm-hmm. So am I encouraging collaboration? <laughs> am, yeah. I, am I holding people accountable if they're not collaborating? Do I give people feedback on their quality of collaboration, their level of collaboration? So are you actively, that's, well, that's what I mean by actively managing it. Right, you're actually thinking aside from your, your profit and loss and your your goals and priorities, are you actually thinking about, you know, what how am I investing and spending time in nurturing culture? Is that right. that's your question?
1: Yeah, it does answer your question. It reminds me of a client that wanted to create a feedback culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't a popular one, and that it hadn't been popular to do feedback, and they really wanted to get a more feedback-centric culture. Yeah. And I remember yeah. saying to the senior executives, great, we've done a whole host of things to announce this and show this and train this and enforce it with people and so on. But that means that you, every time you're meeting with your direct reports, have to be giving feedback.
2: Yes, or asking for it.
1: Yeah, yeah either one if you're not engaged in it then those people don't believe it and then they won't do it and it's all gone from there okay Right. All right, I want to talk for a minute about global organizations. And mm-hmm. one of the phenomena is headquarters tends to have a culture. Yeah. And the satellite offices, particularly the ones further from headquarters, tend to have a completely different culture. We can debate yep. which one we like the best, but <laughs> how do you help or people think about the subculture components? Right,
2: right. Yeah, so I think that's very common. I would say I think it's, it's healthy to a certain extent. Okay. Obviously, as we talk about global companies, you're talk, you, know, you start to infuse national identity, ethnicity, and culture in there as part of this mm-hmm. you know, culture with a capital C perhaps uh, underneath an organization culture. And therefore, mm-hmm. because of that, you can't expect and, and likely don't really want to have a uniform culture across the organization. Okay. right? I think you know, it's sort of unrealistic, unrealistic to think about if we have a culture it's going to be it's going to feel different between the US and China and Dubai for example right okay. and I think that's healthy now what I would say is you want to avoid where those cultures clash or conflict okay so again going back to the to the values and some of the behaviors and beliefs I think you want the key is I think you want some com, you want to have a common kernel across the different the, the different offices so that it's still recognizable. So just as an example, I was in Paris last week and for work and working with a, a leading French retailer. Um, their headquarters, their global headquarters are in France, but we actually had a, people, a bunch of people together from all around the world, from, from North America, from China, from the Middle East, from all over Europe. And what was interesting is there was a common kernel in all of them. There was a certain level of passion for the business. There's a certain level of love of winning and competitiveness in a good way. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's what you want to strive for is you want to feel like when you're together from different offices, you feel like, yeah, yeah, I see the DNA. It's, it's present. It's, it's noticeable. and I can, I can identify it. But you still want to have people feel like they can, they can have their own stamp on it as well, especially okay. local. Luckily. Okay.
1: now I like what you said there because it's not just the generic values like trust and collaboration mm-hmm. you gave values that yes are consistent with those but have a much more of a DNA feel of the company things mm. like a passion for the business and a love of winning um, you know you, can, you could get that you get a more tangible feel of what that culture is like rather than integrity and
2: client centric sure, interest. <clears throat> sure
1: do you think that makes a difference? That's
2: a good question. Um, I don't think it does. Again, okay. I, think, I think what matters is, I mean, if, are, you know, are, these, are these values truly generic and not reflective of who we really are and what we really mm-hmm. look like on a day-to-day basis? Then I think you've got the wrong values. Okay. And, So if if they happen to be quote unquote generic ones like trust, integrity and collaboration, but they are really lived, I think that's great and I think that's fine. Okay. I think those I think those terms have maybe gotten polluted over the years because we've seen so many failed companies and and unethical companies use those too. Right. I think they're still great ones. Um, if if the organizations are living them. But I think ultimately if I think about, you know, passion and love of winning, those are those are very much a reflection of that organization's CEO. And that's what he talks about and lives very much.
1: Well, it strikes me that as I have been talking with you about this, I've focused on the values, you know, the statement Mm -hmm. of the value. But you said there were two other components that I think makes those values come to life. And one is that's what our beliefs about ourselves and what our behaviors with each Mm -hmm. other and with our clients. Mm -hmm. So those are going to take a generic statement and turn it into something very tangible um, that's lived (laughs) for people. Mm Can I ask you a kind of a curveball question here, and it 's yeah. a hypothesis of mine, so let me ask okay. at any rate sure. what 's the power of storytelling in helping people understand the culture
2: oh it 's huge. I think, I think it 's it's, it's massive in terms of why, why do these matter? Why should okay. we care about these? How did we come up with them? How do we want these to look in real life in, in, internally or externally? Um, I think it's, it's yeah, I, I think it's, 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 it cannot be underestimated because, you know, the risk that I've seen and lived in organizations where I felt like values were meaningless and barely worth the paper they were printed on and is, you know, what, what matters is whether these come to life or not or okay. whether they're just two-dimensional and they're just meaningless words on a page. So I think if you do really want to make them living and real, storytelling is a huge part of that.
1: Okay. I remember um, working with a group. I just happened to be facilitating. I am not a specialist in changing culture, but facilitating a weekend where they were sort of verifying a value statement that had been produced by one of the consulting houses, and they didn't have that tangible feel to them. And so Uh we got it down to some statements that everybody was rather happy with in terms Uh of a value statement, not just a word. And then I said, fine, but until you can tell me a story about how you've done this, it's a sure. no-go. So it's that mm. sense of do what's the mythology we tell, and are those consistent yeah. or inconsistent right. with what we just put on this paper?
2: <clears throat> yeah, I okay. think that's right. I, I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, okay. can, we, can we point to some of these values and give concrete examples of how we're actually doing this? Okay. I think is a good litmus test. It's a very
1: important. All right, and... That comes down to then the behaviors, because it's in the stories yeah. that you really get right. the behaviors that we do. Um, sure. All right. Two minutes, Howard. Why culture? does
2: this culture thing matter? <laughs> such a good question. I mean, what, would, what did Peter Drucker say? I mean, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. I mean, what, okay. what, what's so interesting to me is um, after business school, I was a strategy consultant and in my mid-20s. I had the naivete, possibly arrogance, to believe that I was ready to advise CEOs, which was, of course, a bit ridiculous. And, but the idea that there's an answer out there for smart enough is very seductive. Right. And what I found in contrast to that is what matters is whether you can execute or not a uh, mm-hmm. strategy. It doesn't matter how good the strategy is. And culture is the key to executing the strategy. I think, of, I think of culture as the air we breathe, the water we swim in. And, you know, does the, does the air we breathe make us sick? <laughs> is it poisonous? Right. Or does the, the air we breathe actually energize us? Okay. So I, I, so I think of culture ultimately as really enabling organizations to be successful because it's all about, it's all about the how, right? The strategy yeah. is about the what and the focus. And culture is really the how you can actually make that happen and make it work. Okay.
1: I love that. Um, I'm of the um, Minzberg, not the Peter Drucker School. And Minzberg mm. always says that strategy is only ever understood in retrospect, never <laughs> forward. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of a, a consistent view that, um, and often I look at companies within the same industry, and the strategy looks identical for one company to the next. The question is, how do you do it? And can Absolutely. you do it? And can Absolutely. you do it in a way that feels
2: unique? Uh, mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> mm-hmm.
2: Okay. And it, and feels good to the people and actually works in the marketplace.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where people want to stay and sustain and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Well, we're going to take a break. Um, okay. With me today is Howard Ting. Howard is co-founder and managing partner for Considia Consulting where he works with C-level clients and their teams, doing things like helping drive organizational performance, coaching, clarifying and aligning vision and strategy, and he's just seen making this culture thing a reality. And as Howard says, culture in his view, is the values that we stand for, the beliefs we have about ourselves and our clients, and the behaviors we have towards each other and towards our clients. Now, we've been talking about what it is and how you quantify it and what the leader's role and how it varies around the world and why it matters. I'm going to come down and get to the, so what do you do to change it? Mm. And we'll be right back to talk about that.
2: become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america
0: how is your work-life balance in most businesses no matter where you are positioned there is always room for improvement If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
1: With me today is Howard Ting, and Howard is co founder and managing partner of Considia Consulting, focusing on performance, aligning vision and strategy, and ultimately culture. And we've just been talking about the meaning of culture. I think the key summary I take away from all that Howard said is culture is about the values. About the beliefs about ourselves and our clients and about the behaviors and at the end of the day the acid test on the culture is whether we're actually living what we've said and you can do find that out by just asking people how well are we doing this and you're gonna get it down to behaviors and to beliefs not just to those statements that go on the wall okay so we've been talking about the global culture and now I want to talk about this whole notion of changing the culture. So it's one thing when I'm starting my own company or I'm part of a startup and we're creating culture afresh. So I'm starting with a clean field. It's a whole other thing if I've inherited a group, whether that's a large global organization or just a business unit or a group within a business. And as the leader, I now want to try to get a handle on the culture and begin to change it. So, Howard, is there a process to follow? Is there, are there steps to consider? How do we go about making a change in the culture?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think there is a process to follow for sure. Okay. But it's, it's, it's messy. It's definitely messy. So here's, here's how I think about it and how, how I've helped my clients approach it over the years. So number one, you want to understand what's our current culture. Um, number two, you then want to think about what's our desired culture and, and think about, so, you know, what's the, what's the gap between those two? Mm-hmm. And then it's really around figuring it out. So how do we, how do we make the jump? And, and mm-hmm. how we make the jump, of course, is the tricky part. Right. And there's some combination of really getting senior leadership aligned truly bought in truly living those desired values that you want to you want to see and then it's really around engaging the broader organization um, which has you know some flavor of you know communication experiential exercises um, but really having them start to engage and understand like why are we changing the culture (laughs) what is the new culture and really having them start to experience what that can feel like. Okay. And, and then I think it's you know, then it then I think it's really around iterating around all those different dimensions in terms of, you know, senior leaders living it, um, senior leaders senior leaders also leading the shift, which can take some time and some effort. And then obviously starting to really embed some of those shifts within the organization.
1: Okay. So I get the sense that this is not a once and done.
2: No, this no, is,
1: no, no, uh, <laughs> it w- reiterate, yeah.
2: Agreed. <laughs> it's, it's ongoing. I mean, I think that's the other thing I would, I would leave your, your listeners with is, you know, c- culture, maintaining culture, managing culture, it's, it's like working out, right? You don't work out once and say, hey, I'm done, I'm fit. <laughs> it's, it's an ongoing thing, right? So you, it, there's, a, there's a certain level of maintenance that is involved in this, for sure. Agreed.
1: Okay. All right, so now we've talked a little bit about how to understand the current culture, and largely you've said you ask people. You do some focus groups, or you do some survey questions, or you ask people what's it like to be around here. Or are there secret questions that actually really help understand what's real as opposed to what I wish it was?
2: I don't know if there are any secret questions, but I think some of the ones that come to my mind would be, you know, how you know if you were describing our organization to a friend? How would you describe it? Like, what does it feel like to work here? What do you? What's most important to our organization? What do we stand for? So I think you know some of those more open-ended questions versus you know if those are the questions. Those are the questions to ask if you want to understand what our current culture looks like.
1: Okay. All right. So. Let's say as a leader of this group, I have decided what it does feel like to work there and that, let's say, I'm not very happy with the picture that I get back. Right, right. And usually when that comes back, one or two things are just going to happen. I'm going to either deny that that's true it's some yes. version. No, it's not you that bad. That. Or I'm going to blame my predecessor. It was my predecessor's fault and they did all of this. Okay, and once I get past all of that mess... Sure. How do I begin to identify what I want it to be and to think genuinely about that? So, like, it's nice to say, look, I want everybody to come together and be happy, but the reality is that isn't going to happen, and I need some level of competitiveness between people in order to be an effective, productive organization. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So So the question question is,
1: how do I begin to think about what I want the culture to be?
2: Yeah, so I think, I think as a leader, my guess is often you, you, especially if you're inheriting a team, as you put it, you often walk in with some biases, right? So I think, you know, one, I think reflect on what's the culture that you want um, for your, you know, personally is one, is one question to ask. I think two, another question to ask is what culture is going to enable us to be successful is mm-hmm. another question. And then three, okay. I think you also want to think about what, what is my team or what is my organization up for? Mm-hmm. Because it's not just about you as a leader, obviously, right? It's, it, this is going to impact a you know, huge group of, of people. So I think you really want to understand um, you know, how, how big a change am I asking of people and therefore what's really going to be involved in terms of the journey from A to B.
1: Right. Okay, so I was working with an organization not too long ago, and if I'm describing the culture, granted, this is not their description, but I'm describing yeah. the culture, it's a little bit of everybody does their own job in their own seat, and don't you dare get out of it. <laughs> and um, the, you know, lots of cynicism, lots right. of criticism and lots of cynicism, sure. Sure. so that nothing else other than what you've done is really all that good. Wow. Okay. okay? mm mm-hmm. All right, and I would argue that the leader of this organization would be appalled to hear me say what I right. just said. Right. So we won't identify names here.
2: Nope, of course not.
1: But the leader's behaviors are a bit critical, harsh, mm-hmm. cynical. hmm mm-hmm. And that breeds down.
2: Yes, yes, go on.
1: Okay, all right. Now, the work that this group does, there isn't a whole lot of room for collaboration, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. It really is a lot of individuals doing individually oriented tasks or small groups doing individually oriented tasks. Right. So to say we're going to become a team is sort of nice, but that isn't going to really happen. Mm -hmm. Not quite in the ultimate sense about it. So what's your advice to this leader? Where would you start with this leader?
2: Well, I think that I'm not going to start with advice. I'm going to start with questions, meaning that Mm -hmm. is this a problem? you want to change this. So I think if if he or she wants to change it, then I think there's a conversation to be had. So presuming he or she wants to change it, um, the next question is, okay, so how are you contributing to this culture? How are Mm -hmm. you actually creating this culture to happen? So I think there's some reflection around that. And then third is, what what are you up for in terms of making the changes yourself? Um, in, terms of, in terms of how you show up and lead, are you up for that? And then, you know, are you, are you willing to start to make some hard decisions? Meaning that, you know, if you're saying you want this team to get out of silos, is what, what I'm hearing from you, Wanda, and you mm-hmm. want to seem to be really collaborative, you know, are you willing to, like, change some people? <laughs> if you okay. if mm-hmm. get to right. that point, are you willing to make the right. tough decision to actually yeah. say, you know what, this person is toxic to a collaborative culture, they need to go, are you willing to make that call? So those are some of the tough questions I want to ask them, you know, do you want to do this? Because going back to the cynicism point you were making earlier, what I've seen and experienced is the worst thing you can do is is talk about collaboration and trust and integrity and not do it. Or talk about we're going to shift there and not live it. Because then that just breeds more cynicism. So what I would say to people is, look, if you're not serious, don't start it. But if you are, then you've got a shot of making it.
1: Yeah. And I love this notion that you said earlier about the really living and maintaining it, maintaining it, where you're giving feedback on it to people that report Mm -hmm. to you. You're asking for feedback about how I'm doing on whatever it is that I want to change in the culture. And it's not once a year. It's regular and ongoing and evaluative and so forth.
2: Okay, That's right. That's right.
1: Makes sense. All right. So do you have a great example of somebody that you've worked with where they've inherited a culture and then have gone about changing it? And what happened? How do they do it? How long did it take? Right. Can you tell us the story?
2: Yeah, I do. I do have a story. So a few years back, I was working with a, a non-governmental organization that was extremely global. It was actually an independent agricultural research organization mm-hmm. formed in the 70s. So it was formed very United Nations style. And if you can imagine this, it's, it's an organization made up of 52 countries and 15 independent research centers. Oh, and wow. they got together once a year to make a decision. And that decision had to be unanimous. So oh, wow. what do you think happened? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. They often couldn't come to well, you know, unanimity, and so nothing happened. And over the years, they had, they had tried to reform themselves and, and, and change the structure, um, come up with a different vision for the organization, and all, of, all the reform efforts failed because they had asked consultants to come in and give them recommendations, mm-hmm. which, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, so there was a, a senior leader who realized, who was the chair of the organization, who said, you know what, we, we, we have to change because... We're, we're just so inefficient in how we work together. We can't get stuff done. Um, and it's, it's just it's painful for how we, how we work together. So for her first insight was, one, okay, we've got to change. Two, this change has to be internally led. We cannot have mm-hmm. people outside our organization come in and tell us what to do. It's not going to work. Mm-hmm. So what we ended up doing was our, our role was really as the, the consultants who help architect the process, so how they started, so the, the, the end goal actually was to come up with a new vision and strategy and organization structure for the organization. And, but we also realized the only way that we were going to get to that point where we had some sort of alignment across the 52 countries and the 14, 15 independent centers was to change the culture along the way. So, so that's what we had to do. And, and to answer your question, how did we do that? It was just, you know, number one, you've got to start with, why do we have to change? Right? Mm-hmm. That, so that's number one. And why does it really matter? Two, we started by, by really working on mindsets, actually. So what do, what do people believe? What do people assume? And we started to, to, we literally brought together, you know, the senior leaders of all the different constituencies at face-to-face meetings, at different, on different continents. Um, and we started to introduce them to foundational concepts like trust, like uh-huh. alignment, like mindset. Uh-huh. And we started to, to shift their own mindsets around how they work together and um, what could be possible. And, and so, so that was the, the beginning. And it was really around starting with some of those foundational things to start to shift the culture. And okay. then, you know, the, the, broader, the broader work was around the vision, the strategy, and the org structure. And it was really around setting up teams of their people to actually come up with the with the answer. Ah. So what we did it was it was really it was a combination of vision, strategy, and org structure work, but really with an or with a, a culture change component that was the enabler to actually make all that stuff Great. happen.
1: Great. And this is back to what you said already that it can't just be the culture because that's what we want to have because that would feel nice. It has to be that this is the culture that enables us to live our strategy to do what we're trying to accomplish in the marketplace. Right. Exactly. So you put this all together.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, presumably when you're trying to shift mindset, that part of what you're doing there is helping people see that an alternative way of engaging each other is actually possible. Mm-hmm. So I'm presuming that there's a fair amount of experiential exercises in that to illustrate an alternative. Is
2: that fair? Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so I think I think the key is I think we're, we're in an era where telling doesn't work very well. Like me yeah. telling you, you've got to change your mindset. <laughs> that doesn't work, that right? Limited mileage.
1: <laughs> yeah. Call yeah. me in a couple of years. Let me know how that goes, right. okay?
2: <laughs> now, me teeing up a question that says, What's your mindset and how might you need to shift it in, in, in service of what you want? That works. Okay. So it was really around asking the question. Mm-hmm. And having people go through that the exercise themselves and realizing, ah, we do need to change, and I need to change. So I think it's really around creating the, the opportunity for them to have that reflection and then have okay. that dialogue as well. Okay.
1: Okay. Yeah, um, because often that's what it is. I and mean, People aren't even aware of the mindset that they've necessarily adopted. I've been living in this pool mm-hmm. for so long, right. Right. it just seems like that's normal. Isn't every place the same
2: Okay. I, think that, I think that's right, and I think, I don't know, I often, I often talk to, we use a visual when we talk about mindsets, we use an iceberg sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. So the behaviors are on the surface, they're visible, but the, the, bigger, the bigger issue is around what's the mindset, right? And right. ultimately, it's the mindset that gives rise to the behaviors. So that's ultimately your leverage point for, for yeah. any, any sort of change you're trying to make as a leader, mm-hmm. or even as an individual, I would say.
1: Okay. All right. So I'm interested now in the leader of this group. And what did the chair find that he or she had to change in him or herself in this process?
2: <laughs> I think, she. first of all, she's, a, she's, she's an amazing leader. Um, she, I think what she realized was she, she had to be patient. So I think one of your original questions was how long did this take? It, it took a couple of years, okay. Um, and I and I and I could say again, as a former strategy consultant, was the vision and strategy in org structure earth shattering? Not at all, not at all. Okay. But it wasn't about that. <laughs> it wasn't about the most innovative answer. It was about an answer that people could get behind, right? So okay. going back to your question here about the leader, I think what she realized was she had to be patient. She had to be willing to take the shots because the reality was everyone had something to lose. And of mm-hmm. course, the contract is was also true. Everyone had something to gain. Mm-hmm. But she realized pretty early on in the change effort that she's getting shots from everybody, which in some ways I saw is good. She may not. <laughs> she may not see it that way because she was the one, of course, getting all the criticism from people. Okay, But what we found is you know, that that was a sign that, you know, people were engaging. So mm-hmm. she ultimately really had to just play a role where she wasn't directing as much, but really listening. I mean, really, really listening, which yeah. she's very good at. And then really starting to think about, okay, so how do we start to orchestrate some of that? How do I listen to the people's concerns from different points of views? And how do we start to infuse some of some of these discussions and dialogues into the change effort, and how do we start Mm -hmm. to incorporate some of these concerns as we think about what we're doing. So ultimately, I think she just had to be really, really patient and just really play more, more of a convening role. Okay.
1: That's an interesting one because we often talk about the leader. We often have this image in our own head talking about mindset as leader. We use the word drive, as it was to drive this change, mm-hmm. which leads the sense of I'm out front dragging everybody along behind if you really get to the core of what it means to drive. And if it's right. not that, I'm behind with a whip, kind of <laughs> pushing people <laughs> along. Yeah. And what you're describing is a very different role for her, at least in this particular case, a convening role where mm-hmm. you're being patient where you're insistent that, yes, there is a new reason, there is a reason we're changing, and in that reason we're not giving up the need to reason, but I'll listen. I'm going to hear the criticism. I'll take the hit for that for some. Right. I'm going to right. find out what it is people are really worried about, and we're going to incorporate that as we go forward.
2: Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll never forget. There was a, we, were, we were in Mozambique, actually. We were getting ready for one of the big meetings, and we had talking points for her. <laughs> And she, was, she just looked at me and she said, Howard, I'm done with mea culpas. I'm, I'm tired of <laughs> talking about what I'm doing wrong or how I need to change. <laughs> She's just like, I'm over it. <laughs> you know? So yeah. I think privately, obviously, she, she, there were times she, you know, her patience wore thin, uh, sure. of course. But, um, sure. but yeah, I think, I, I do very much think of change efforts as need to be driven by leaders. They need to lead. But I think to your point, that can look very, very different. And I think, I mean, I've seen the whole range of how a leader needs to show up in, in, in the middle of a change effort, in the middle of a culture change. Anything from, I mean, I really think of their role as being very adaptive and almost shapeshifter-like, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're the diplomat. Sometimes you're the conductor. Sometimes you're the dictator. <laughs> and sometimes you're the servant, possibly. Okay. And I think it's, all, it's really around being aware of what role do I need to play at what point to get the organization where I want it to get to? And okay. be willing to do that. It's not easy. Great. <sighs> That's
1: interesting because I do find that many leaders see themselves as one of those four or one of Mm. several other words. I'm either Mm -hmm. the diplomat or I'm the servant or I'm the dictator or I'm a conductor or I'm a convener or I'm a whatever. And your notion is yes and, all of them and more. And then the question is which one where to move this thing forward um, the way you think it needs to be forward. Now, how much of this is the leader needing to say, I want the culture to be X and in effect it will be regardless what it takes to get there. And how much of it is I know our culture needs to change and let me adapt a bit on what that looks like as I hear from mm-hmm. people?
2: I think it's somewhere in the middle, right? Okay. I, think, I think a leader has to have some sort of guardrails, Right. I think it I think walking in and saying it's a blank sheet of paper is a bit dangerous. Hmm. I also okay. think the, the opposite effect of here's what it's gonna be, nod your heads. Okay, <laughs> it doesn't work, frankly. Okay. So I think there's some there's somewhere in the middle around look, having some sense of look, I think it's we have to go in this direction. Right. But I think the power in a culture change effort in any change effort that I've seen and been part of is having it being people led also. That where people feel like they have a a hand in shaping it. What it actually looks like, what it actually feels like, and they feel like, yeah, I can see I can see my work reflected in the values or the org structure or whatever it is. So I think this is where process actually can matter. And and getting buy in is so, so important whenever you're doing a change like this. So I think it's I think it's Having some vision that might Mm -hmm. be a little fuzzy in a good way, actually, it's directional, Mm -hmm. but then really giving the space to the people and the staff and the organization to actually play around with it and actually start to put their own stamp on it. I think that's going to be super, super important and can be very, very valuable.
1: Um, I th- I think what you've just said is the most powerful thing of all from changing anything, whether it's the culture or the strategy or the processes or anything, is that when you dictate, people tend to resist. And if they don't resist, then they perform to the letter of the law, but not to the spirit of the law, which doesn't get us anywhere. Right. But finding that magic between I've just abdicated responsibility and you tell me what you want it to be and never mind, I have nothing to say about this, right. and right. where I'm guiding, but people mm. feel like it's theirs, um, they own it because they've shaped, they've shaped it. They've had a control in it without letting it be completely blank-shaped. And so many times when I talk with, work with lots of leaders around communi- getting buy-in, buy-in to them means everybody agree with me.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> right.
1: And it's, yep. I think it's an organic process. In organic, you know, it, everybody has to have a piece in it. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I don't own it.
2: Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Very hard so to for, do. Yeah, for your leaders out there, I'd say to the extent that you've got the time and the space to create a process around, whether it's strategy, culture, where you've got, you've, you have the ability to give people a chance to weigh in and, and shape it themselves, I think you're going to get better results.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I often say to you when you're doing a change effort, again, whether it's culture or anything else, you can define the parameters, I mean the boundary conditions mm-hmm. or the end state, but mm-hmm. then give people flexibility on how they help you get to that end state or play within those boundaries. And I think that's what you're saying.
2: That is, very much so. Well, uh, very nice synthesis. <laughs>
1: My words, not yours, though, in that one. (laughs) All right, fine. Howard, fortunately or not, we're out of time. So with me today is Howard Ting. Howard is co-founder and managing partner for Considia Consulting, where he works with C-level clients and their teams on organizational performance, clarifying and aligning on vision and strategy, and ultimately around culture. Because as Howard said, culture is the thing that lets us execute the strategy at the end of the day. Or to quote from Peter Drucker, um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. A summary, the culture is defined by the values that we live, the things that we believe about ourselves and our customers, and the behaviors that we show towards each other and to our customers, and to our partners in general, um, in the larger value chain on that one. And it is a matter not of changing the culture is not just let me go out and make an announcement. It is a journey, this wasn't Howard's words, it's mine, where I have some sense of where I wanna go, it's aligned with the strategy, so that it's consistent with what we need to do. There's a compelling reason for why we need to change. And now I have to find a process that allows people to have a voice in, a hand in, a shape in the culture. And ultimately the culture comes down to that we consistently manage and maintain, which means we evaluate, we get feedback on, we test it, We don't just do it once and then let it go. It becomes a daily embedded or at least a quarterly embedded review process in how we work as an organization. So, Howard, thank you for being a guest today. That was fabulous.
2: Thank you, Wanda. I've really enjoyed it.
1: All right. With pleasure. And join us next week for yet another episode on Out of the Comfort Zone.
0: Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.